electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. The chorus is growing louder for Congress to pass a stimulus bill, as the Fed Chair Powell now says it's essential. But with the Supreme Court fight looming, is there any chance Congress can compromise and push the bill through? We'll ask NEC Director Larry Kudlow in just a couple of minutes. Plus, Apple now down 20% from its highs. Don't call it a bear market just yet, though. We'll look at some of the longer-term trend levels the stock is in danger of breaking. And Tesla tamps down the hype. Hooligan logic, a nirvana day for Carvana, and it's time to go stooping, Dom. That's all ahead this hour, but we begin with these choppy markets. Mr. Chu here with those numbers. All right, so, Kelly, choppy it is, but not a lot of chop, all right? If you take a look at the S&P 500 right now, we're up about one-tenth of 1%. Right in the middle of the trading range so far today, at the session highs, the S&P 500 was up roughly 22 points. And at the lows of the day, we were down about 11 points. So we're still below that 50-day average price in the S&P. Something to watch there as it tries to find some kind of upside momentum, trying to snap a four-day losing streak. And remember, the Dow underperforming today in the NASDAQ did see briefly negative territory. Now, a sector to watch is the financials. Four-day losing streak for this particular sector, and you can see on a year-to-date basis, there's a relatively deep divide, a gap between the down 23% for the financial sector and the down near 40% for the bank stocks. So what's outperforming in financials these days is exchange operators. It's also broker-dealers. It's also asset managers and insurance companies. Those are the financials you want to watch. The bank stocks are still very much lagging, and... The stock of the day so far, you heard Scott Walker talking about it at the end of the show in halftime report, Amazon stock, after a 19% decline from the recent highs, we've now bounced just about 6% to the upside here, an analyst upgrade helping to do that. And Kelly, by the way, with Amazon stock these days, they're upgrading it because of the recent pullback, attractive entry point, 94% of analysts tracked by FactSet have an outperform or buy rating on Amazon, just a couple of holds and one sell. We'll see if Amazon goes on shopping lists if a pullback continues. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, sir. Dominic Chu. Well, the calls for more government stimulus do continue to grow, but the markets have been selling off as the Supreme Court fight threatens to suck all of the oxygen out of the room. Today, both Fed Chair Jerome Powell and the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin addressed the importance of Congress passing more relief. Let me say that I think a big part of the, of the good economic news that we have had results from the fiscal support that came with the CARES Act. So it, it deserves a lot of the credit for keeping people spending and uh, keeping people business confidence and household confidence high. I think that it is likely that, that more fiscal support will be needed. The President and I remain committed to providing support for American workers and business. We continue to work with Congress on a bipartisan basis to pass a phase four relief program. I believe a targeted package is still needed and the administration is ready to reach a bipartisan agreement. And joining me now is Larry Kudlow. He is the director, of course, of the National Economic Council. Larry, welcome back. Thank you, Kelly. 
Let me start with whether we're going to have another uh, relief bill, as I like to call it, on the COVID front. Um, you know, it does seem to quote a lot of the D.C. people we talked to yesterday. They said, listen, with how vicious this fight over the Supreme Court seat is going to be, there's no way Congress is going to compromise on this bill now. Do you think that analysis is right? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of it. You can walk and chew gum at the same time, so it's not necessarily a given. But look, as you just heard Secretary Mnuchin, it's important from the administration, from the president's standpoint, we have been asking for five or six um, assistance programs. I don't think the V-shaped recovery depends on the package, but I do think a targeted package could be a great help. Um, in shorthand, we call it kids and jobs. We wanted additional funds, for example, I believe $105 billion, Kelly, uh, all along um, to help open the schools, any you know, costs that are necessary for safety and security to help open the schools, which is absolutely vital for education, for psychology, for, for the economy. Second, we also wanted to extend the assistance plan, the uh, PPP plan, to small businesses. I mean, we actually had money, I don't know, it's over $100 billion right. that could be repurposed to go back into that plan. I think the plan was very effective. I think it did save perhaps 50 million jobs, and I think it's helping folks get back to work, you know, better unemployment numbers uh, than we suspected. So those are just two items. There are other items that we were happy to look at, but unfortunately we couldn't reach agreement uh, with the other side. And so that was before the judicial issues uh, came up. So I'm just saying I don't think one depends on the other. I just think we were at a stalemate, and I wish we could break the stalemate because even though I think the economy is improving nicely, it could use help in some key targeted places. Larry, what do you think the macro impact is going to be? Uh, let's say the Supreme Court seat is filled uh, in the next couple of months uh, by Republicans. What is the market's impact? What is the economic impact likely to be over the next 5, 10, 15 years, do you think? Well, that's a hard question, Kelly. Um, I mean, I think you're going to get a conservative jurist. Um, I think that the president is acting correctly with the Senate, Senate Leader uh, McConnell. I, I don't know. I mean, in economic terms, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into this. I'm not a judicial Supreme Court expert. I'm just saying in economic terms, I think of, when I look at these uh, nominees for the court, I think of regulatory actions, which come up uh, quite a bit. And I think, as you know, I prefer uh, a lighter touch, a lighter uh, foot on regulatory actions, especially economic regulations. Now, that has been the trend. As you know, uh, the Trump administration has pushed very hard to roll back onerous regulations along with tax cuts, and I help, it's given us tremendous prosperity. So I'm going to assume that the nominee, whoever he or she may be, uh, will continue a lighter touch on regulation. It doesn't mean no regulation, it just means a lighter touch, maybe more sensitivity uh, to business jobs in the economy. But that's as far as it would go. I don't think that's going to be a dominant factor in the outlook for the economy uh, over the next longer run. No, no, although I, I take your point that it could take some, some time to play out. So let me shift back to what looms for the next couple of months. We have not just the uh, kind of need to extend some kind of relief program. And as you've indicated, you guys are looking maybe to some targeted programs, uh, two, three, four, five, six of them. I don't know whether that could advance, but we also need to cut the, those CR bills, you know, the, just the idea of funding the government and keeping it open. Um, 
Can you explain kind of the politics of this? I mean, are, which of these are bargaining chips? Are, is anything, is everything on the table now? Uh, or are we going to be able to see kind of those issues dealt with and then the Supreme Court and, and other things as a separate fight? Well, I would say separate tracks, Kelly. In other words, the CR, which is necessary to keep the government open, I think Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin decided several weeks ago that that would be a clean bill. It would not uh, affect or include any of the potential targeted assistance plans uh, for the broader CARES Act 3, 4, whatever CARES Act we're on. So I think that runs a separate track. Uh, I think there's a broad agreement developing on the CR, but it's not completed yet. There are still some matters that are up for grabs. I don't want to interfere with those negotiations. I don't want to speculate. But the CR is to keep the government open. I believe they agreed to mid-December. I think that's what the push is. So that's a good thing. Nobody wants a government shutdown if we can if we can avoid it. That is a separate action from the stimulus conversation, and that's a separate action from the uh, judicial conversation. And finally, Larry, because we you know can't go in unless we talk about TikTok and what a an odd strange you know but again I, I understand the the reason why it's of essential national security importance but i'm still confused about the deal shaping up i think a lot of people are you know what exactly the ownership structure is who's the majority and who's not um what do you think is the main takeaway from the, that we should all have in mind when it comes to the process uh that's going out. I don't even know how to, to describe it. I mean, what, what are we to make of TikTok? Is this a done deal? It, it, and do you feel good about it? Well, look, um, I'll echo what the president said. The, the two key points, Kelly, number one, security. That is absolutely essential. Uh, and this is being discussed and it's being looked at intensely uh, by review processes inside the, inside the government. But security is essential. We do not want the Chinese government or the Communist Party or the Chinese military to have access uh, to very significant and important personal information, which might open the door to even more information. We want to stop that. It can be done, but it's being looked at very, very carefully. Uh, and the bidders, uh, principally Oracle right now on the tech side, um, are working with uh, us internally to sort that out. I can't give you a conclusion yet. The other point is ownership. The president wants U.S. ownership of the NUCO if there is a NUCO. And um, again, I can't get ahead of that story, but that's being examined very, very carefully. I mean, look, th there is a process. It's ongoing. It's evolving. Um, I don't want to front run, but I think the president suggested some optimism about it, but it's not a done deal, is, that's is for it, sure. Larry, there's, there's one thing though I, I would love your philosophical stance on, though, before we go very quickly. but. You had Hu Jin, son of the Communist Party mouthpiece, saying, hey, we, we don't mind what the U.S. is doing with uh, TikTok. It could be a template for how countries deal with multinationals going forward. What happens if China in a few years' time says, well, Apple can kind of play by our rules if TikTok can play by yours? Well, look, we, we, we can't control what China does. I mean, the Chinese government has said time and again that with respect to their companies, their private companies, or whatever the public, uh, quasi-public companies, but in any case, the government has said they have a call. They have access by law on information from those companies. They can call on it at any time. And that is unsatisfactory to us 
uh, with respect to operations in the U.S. And again, the President said this many times. Uh, Secretary Pompeo said it. Mnuchin said it. I've said it. Many others have said it. So that's a key point. And we're not going to accept uh, anything less uh, with respect to the TikTok deal or, for that matter, other deals. Uh, we are being tougher. China has a terrible record here of, um, of uh, hacking and cyber hacking and interfering and espionage. And, you know, we've talked about structural changes in the trade deal yeah. with respect to IP theft and forced transfers of technology. You know, the trade deal is being engaged, but I'm saying on this particular deal with respect to uh, ByteDance and TikTok and Walmart and Oracle, these are key considerations. We have to have those considerations. I think the American public doesn't want uh, anything less. It's a matter of protecting security. And by the way, you know, we've argued, I've argued, uh, we have to take a look very carefully now at Chinese companies who are listed here in the United States. Uh, we had a uh, presidential memo on this from a financial working group mm -hmm. that the issues of fraud and lack of transparency down through the years as raised by the uh, Public Accounting Board and the SEC are going to have to be resolved in one year. And if they're not resolved, and that includes backup papers, uh, then uh, we will have to look at delisting uh, yeah. some of these companies that don't meet our criteria. I mean, I just want to say that uh, on all these matters, we're trying to protect the health and safety of the U.S. and the economy. I mean, right now, coming out of this dreadful pandemic contraction, uh, we're still dealing with it. The economy's coming back. There is a V-shaped recovery. You've heard me say that before, and I think the data show that. We just had great numbers on living standards, on household wealth. Today we had good numbers on uh, housing sales. That's excellent. So we think this is going to go forward with or without a stimulus package. But yeah. overhanging this with our dealings with China, we must protect American workers, uh, manufacturing, technology. We must protect our family jewels. We must protect our innovative uh, efforts. We're the most inventive country in the world when it comes to technology. Technology drives the economy these days. Yeah, 100 percent. So yeah. I think you can't, you know, you, you certainly can't blame us for being even more careful. I think it's been lax in prior administrations, and President Trump has tightened it up enormously. And this TikTok deal is... Um, part and parcel of that. All right. Well, again, the effect remains to be seen in the years ahead. I'll put this up there with the Supreme Court about what it means for American multinationals and so much more. But for now, Larry, we'll leave it there. And thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Larry Kudlow is director of the National Economic Council. The Nasdaq is leading the major averages today, but it's still down over 7% this month, while the QQQs, the Nasdaq 100, down by about 8%. Morgan Stanley saying we're only halfway through the tech sell-off. In fact, the firm is saying the Nasdaq 100 could fall as much as 20% from its peak. For more, let's bring in A.J. Oden. He's head of investment risk at BNY Mellon Investor Solutions. And Michael Kushma is chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to you both. And uh, it's good to speak with you after just hearing from Larry Kudlow as well. So, A.J., I'll begin with you. Uh, do you share this concern about where the tech sector is heading and uh, what do you think is going on with the economy overall? Well, yeah, I think... Um you know, we saw the, uh, the unfortunate news that we got um, about the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, you know, coupled with um, the potential for lockdowns creates a lot of volatility in the market right now. And so, um, you know, on, with taking all that in consideration right now, we do think that, um, you know, the IT sector is po poised for some more drawback. Um, we do like the sector going forward. You know, obviously we saw the adoption of, you know, a lot of this work from home technology and we see that to continue. 
as we get through this pandemic, but we do see a little bit more volatility on the horizon. Okay, Michael Kushmer, what about you? I mean, I'm obviously not going to ask you about the NASDAQ per se or a fixed income guy, but, you know, we just heard Mr. Kudlow say that he believes the V-shaped recovery is intact. Um, and are you in that camp? And what happens in the months ahead now um, with there, if there's not going to be at least a major, uh, another major stimulus bill? Well, the economy does seem to be doing steadily better. The easy financial conditions, low interest rates, both nominal and real, are definitely supporting the economy. Uh, the manufacturing sector is coming back. Consumer spending has been rising on the back of all the stimulus checks and, and unemployment compensation that's been provided by, by, by the government. Um, the question is, can it sustain itself indefinitely into the future? Right now, it looks good, but the best, best big bounce in, the Q, in Q2, Q3 is probably past us. So we're optimistic that things will go well going forward, but not as, as, as strong as it's been in recent, in recent weeks. So optimistic, but the pace of improvement is likely to slow down. There are major sectors in the economy that are still challenged, you know, air, transportation, uh, airlines, lodging, travel, leisure are still well below subpar in terms of, of mobility. And until that gets better, which is probably going to only be when a vaccine or something close to that shows up, will we get get fully back to where we are. But right now, we are on a nice upward trajectory. Yeah, I know. AJ, you certainly hope it stays that way. I'll ask you why you prefer non-U.S. equities over U.S. equities right now. Well, actually, um, you know, just to, to echo off of the, the prior comments there is, that, you know, facing, you know, 0% interest rates for the next four years, um, you know, facing a weakened dollar, um, we prefer that that region has better price or lower price to earnings ratios with the year, year over year comparison to earnings per share. And so with that being said, you know, we, we see that, that, you know, the developed U.S. dollar uh, performing better from a valuation perspective. Uh, I'm sorry, developed non-dollar uh performing better from a valuation perspective over uh, U.S. dollar equities. All right, fair enough. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. A.J. Odin and Michael Kushma talking about these markets today. We'll keep an eye on it for you. Still coming up, the U.K. imposing new restrictions as the prime minister says they're at a perilous turning point following a surge of COVID cases. Is this a precursor of what could happen here, or is the U.S. better prepared? Plus, the buzz around Tesla's battery day has been building for months, but last night, Elon Musk threw a bit of cold water on it, and the stock is dropping what to expect, why it matters, and where we, where the stock is headed. And putting the pedal to the metal, look at Carvana shares up 35% today after an already monster year. Those details and more ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. 268 days since the pandemic started now, and we're starting to see familiar and troubling case patterns emerge, both here and abroad. This is the death toll in the U.S. tops 200,000, the highest in the world. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest. What do we know, Meg? 
Hey, Kelly. Well, let's uh, take a look at Europe to start. They are in the midst of what looks like a second wave. If you take a look at the new daily case counts in countries like Spain, France and the UK, uh, you can see they are steadily ticking up. In the UK, of course, today implementing new measures, encouraging folks who can work from home to do so, closing bars and restaurants earlier. This as we are starting to see uh, cases ticking up in the United States now as well. And if this trend continues, this would be the country third wave in terms of daily case counts. Uh, 13 states now are seeing more than 25% growth in new daily cases week over week. Those are the dark yellow states there, primarily in the middle of the country. Dr. Fauci today telling CNN that we need to get cases much lower before October, November, and December. Here's why. If we don't get that baseline down sharply to a very low level, and the reason we need it there is because when you have a very low baseline and you start to get the uh, blips, as I call them, you don't want them to turn into surges or rebounds. And when you have a lot of cases floating around, it's much more difficult to contain that. But Kelly, of course, the trends are going in the wrong direction for a number of states which are hitting new peaks uh, in daily new case counts. Three states here, Minnesota, Utah, and Wisconsin, all seeing more than 50% growth in their seven-day average of new daily case counts. So we need to return to the things we've been told to do this entire time, distancing, masks, uh, hygiene, all of those things they say work. We just need to implement them in time to try to make a dent in this before fall, Kelly. And is there anything we've learned from Europe in, in that regard? Or is, I, even as we watch the UK, you know, try to figure out what they can do to slow uh, the same thing from happening here? Yeah, well, if you look at these kinds of restrictions they're putting in place, it's clearly the places where people are gathering indoors, restaurants, bars, workplaces. We know that being inside is more dangerous than being outside in terms of the spread of this disease. And so trying to curb that activity as much as possible is what people are trying to do. But that gets harder as it gets colder and we can't do as much outside. So that's the main concern. Absolutely. Meg, thank you very much. Meg Terrell bringing us up to speed with the latest on the pandemic front. Coming up from narrative changing to a pillar of multi-decade growth to technological leader. Those are some of the phrases analysts have used for Tesla's battery day today. Will they deliver? The stock's down 4%. We'll be right back. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential with capella university's game-changing flex path learning format you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's where we stand in the markets with the Dow splitting the difference on the kind of day it's had. Down 157 at the lows, up 139 at the highs and fractionally lower as I speak. The S&P up 13 points. The Nasdaq, the outperformer with a pretty nice 90 point gain, uh, eight tenths of a percent. That continues the pattern so far this week where it has been uh, the best of the three major averages. Banks, one of the weakest spots once again today. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update at this hour. Sue? Kelly, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. As we've been telling you, more than 200,000 Americans have now died from COVID-19. That's according to Johns Hopkins University. More than half of those deaths have been in the last four months. The grim milestone comes as new cases are once again on the rise. And in fact, New York and New Jersey just adding five more states to their quarantine list. Britain reporting 37 coronavirus deaths today, the highest daily toll since July. This as the UK prepares for a significant tightening of its pandemic restrictions. Tropical Storm Beta has been downgraded to a tropical depression with sustained winds of 35 miles per hour. Storm surge warnings have been lifted, but heavy rains are expected to continue to move east and north as the week continues. And voters in Maine will become the first to rank their choices for who should be the next president of the United States. Maine's top court denying a Republican-led petition to block the new voting system. You are up to date, Kel. I'll send it back to you. Wow, that's a big change, Sue. Thank you very much, mm-hmm. Sue Herrera. We're just hours away from kicking off Tesla's battery day. Shares are lower ahead of it after CEO Elon Musk tried to temper supercharged expectations. Musk has been hyping up battery day since April when he teased it on Tesla's earnings call saying, quote, I think it'll be one of the most exciting days in Tesla's history. Then on June 21st, he took to Twitter to announce that battery day will include a tour of Tesla's cell production system. And earlier this month, Musk tweeted that, quote, many exciting things will be unveiled on battery day. But last night, he cautioned that whatever is revealed today will not reach serious high-volume production until 2022. So our investors' expectations about to short-circuit here. With me now, Steve Wesley is founder of the Wesley Group and an early Tesla investor. And Joe Osha is equity research analyst at JMP Securities. Wonderful to have you both here. Joe, I'll just begin with you. What do you make of Musk's tweet last night? Well, it's interesting. I think expectations had clearly gotten out of hand. But if you look at a lot of the information that's that's out there, the people that followed this closely weren't really expecting some of the big new technologies to, to ramp for a couple of years anyway. So I, I don't think this is a big surprise, to be honest. OK, but I don't know, Steve. I think it's interesting. He had to come out and kind of why why is he playing it down, Steve? Why not be hyping it up? That that's that. Why? What do you what do you read into this? Well, look, I think Elon's looking at the stock and saying $400 billion. That's pretty, pretty uh, nosebleedy high. But I think this is going to be a big announcement for Tesla, and it's going to be a big announcement for four reasons. First, they're announcing a new form factor that should enable them to lower prices substantially over the next two years. Second, uh, they're going to provide what I believe will be a million-mile battery. One of the major concerns about buying an electric vehicle is would I have to replace my battery in five or seven or eight years with a million mile battery? That concern goes out the window. Third, this appears to be the greenest battery ever made, removing uh, the cobalt from it. Those are three big advances. If he nails those, that would be impressive. But I think the fourth thing he hinted at it was even more potentially revolutionary, and that is, will Tesla begin to go into the utility business. And as you know, they've already sold mega batteries in South Australia and other parts of the world uh, that could be a foot into the door of this new area. They've also applied for the right 
to become a utility in the UK and actually have received licenses to start that in uh, Western Europe. Yeah. So all told, Tesla's making some pretty bold steps here. And Joe, that said, you have a market perform rating on the stock and a lot of these expectations are already priced yeah. in. Listen, if I know about the million mile battery and utility thing and everything else going on, then trust me, everyone investing in Tesla also knows. Mm -hmm. um, are expectations yeah, yeah. too high? Uh, look, we think the stock is fairly valued for the, the intermediate term. I downgraded it to neutral at, at $300 split adjusted. But I, I do want to respond to some of the points that were just made. Look, I, I agree. Um, Tesla is going from being basically a taker of other people's technologies, Panasonic and CATL, to, to really the master of their own fate. And that's enormously significant with the different form factor, uh, the dry cell technology that they've gotten from Maxwell. So I, I don't want to underplay the significance of, of this day at all. It's just that I think expecting this to go into volume production to tomorrow is, is a little silly. But Tesla's becoming an independent uh, battery manufacturer over time. And I think that is, that's a pretty darn big deal, to be honest. And finally, Steve, the battery is important in general. Remind us, I mean, we're talking about about a quarter of the cost of an electric vehicle being the battery. Uh, if Tesla wants to stay ahead of the curve in terms of all the competition that's coming into the market, uh, both the fact that it can reduce costs, make it more... Uh, sort of uh, green, a greener battery doesn't require as much cobalt, for instance, which is a difficult input material. I mean, those are all very important long-run competitive issues, right? Well, look, absolutely. Whoever controls the cost curve on electric batteries is going to win the EV vehicle race. And Mr. Musk has done two things that were incredibly smart here. First, he was the very first person to take the uh, production of batteries in-house, lowering their cost uh, structure dramatically over VW and their other major competitors. But here's the part most people aren't focusing on. We're heading into a new phase globally, which is the electrification of everything. It's going to be your appliances, your cars, trains, buses, trucks, eventually airplanes, the electrification of everything. There is going to be, I analysts predict, a large global dearth of lithium-ion batteries. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Musk is not only bringing production in-house to reduce cost, he also wants to make sure he has uh, production capacity when others don't. These two things, I think when we look back two, three years from now, people say that guy was absolutely on the uh, on the cutting edge. Yeah, and I know his former colleague is trying to also recycle batteries, even cell phone batteries. Maybe trouble. Yes, exactly. Guy. Address this issue. Yeah. Well, yeah. we look forward to hearing what's going to be announced today and the changes that it could portend. Thank you both very much today. Steve Wesley and Joe Thank Osha with a little us. preview of what Tesla might have up its sleeve. Again, as I mentioned, the shares are under pressure. So are Apple shares, which has fallen 20 percent from their 52-week high now. And the charts are saying this is a make-or-break moment for the stock. We'll tell you why. Plus, Carvana is going the other direction and soaring as they give a very rosy outlook and the streak gets uber bullish. We've got the details with the stock up 32 percent today. And the biggest hedge fund out there has employees working in a pretty unexpected place. We'll show you the pictures after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should definitely be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are John Fort, Julia Borston, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. First up, the TikTok saga continues with the Chinese state-backed tabloid The Global Times publishing an editorial calling the deal unfair, and they're also accusing Washington of bullying and hooligan logic. But the state media, not the only one with some harsh words about the deal. Media mogul Barry Diller was on Squawk Box this morning. Here's his take on the proceedings. 
the whole thing is a crock. I mean, it starts obviously simply to say we want to protect the security of uh, uh, of Americans from uh, anything that could happen to them by using TikTok. It is now morphed into this kind of ludicrous uh, kind of match game match between tossing ownership here, control there, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it's it it's. Its original aims uh, are uh, out the window, and in has just come a whole political mismatch. What do you think, John Ford? Is he being too unfair? Nope. You know, I've been saying this for more than a week. (laughs) This deal is ridiculous. What it really ought to be about is protecting the data of U.S. citizens and protecting the environment for speech and ideas and making sure between the cloud infrastructure and policing of the algorithm that those two things happen. The way you do that is by making rules that apply to everyone about where U.S. citizen data has to reside, how algorithms have to work. Instead of doing that, the administration has tried this kind of uh, horse trading, you know, point by point, situation by situation, um, I don't know, horse trading, where the president says one thing one day and something completely different another day. It's a mess. You know, I asked Derek Scissors of AEI about this, John, on the show yesterday, because he said, you know, I can see how this deal still achieves what it meant to set out to achieve. And I said, how? And he said, well... You have these board members. So he said, for instance, the Walmart guy could step down from the board, uh, and then presumably that would be a warning sign to the rest of us that something was amiss. <laughs> and I agree with you. I share some skepticism about that. Yeah, so th- there's like canaries in the coal mine that are supposed to be built into this that send some kind of signal where we're supposed to know something. That's not how technology works. Look, if you're going to protect U.S. citizen data, put the right rules in place to do that. If you're going to make sure that algorithms aren't censoring, you know, Winnie the Pooh uh, from TikTok, then put rules and and policing in place to do that. The president can't do that on a point-by-point, day-by-day basis. That's that's no way to run an economy. Julia, could it emerge over time? I mean, is this kind of the first awkward effort at something much more um, philosophical that's coming? Well, this is an awkward effort at trying to figure out if this is the deal that could be done, because as John pointed out, this is a scenario which is being negotiated by two sides, China and the U.S. Both governments want to show that they're winning. So it's unclear if this deal can ever happen because the Chinese government wants to show that Chinese ByteDance is still a majority owner or has some significant presence in this company. And then on the other hand, you have President Trump saying he's not going to sign off on this if it's not majority U.S. held. And a lot of that, Kelly, just comes down to semantics. ByteDance owns 80 percent of this new company. But what the U.S. is saying is that ByteDance, if you take into account that it, it's ByteDance is 40 percent owned by U.S. investors, then you can get to over 50 percent right. U.S. ownership. But you so don't... a lot of debate here about what it'll even take I, for this I think, deal to John, be approved. What, what do you think? The, my hypothesis is the, owners, the, the ownership structure is just complicated enough that it gives everybody the chance to say they won, which is the only way this thing gets resolved, right? But that's not a win. That's horrible. I, it's politics, be, because, yeah. No, no, be, this, there's actual data and actual rule of law at stake here. Uh, This whole talk about American ownership, a lot of these VC firms, they don't actually own all of the shares here. They've got foreign investors who who have their money in this as well. So this isn't about American ownership. And plus, I don't care. I don't trust every American. I want rules that protect my data and protect the environment for free speech. Just because American is on it doesn't mean it's good. There's got to be rule of law. Now, you know, we've given... 
I think these are such good points. We just said, sorry, Carvana, we're not going to talk about you today. Everyone just needs to know that, Mike, the shares are up 34%. Let's skip ahead and talk about from trading floors to tents, what's going on at Bridgewater. The world's largest hedge fund has set up shop in the woods near its Connecticut headquarters. Their setup includes open-sided tents, weather-resistant screams and webcams, and even noise-canceling software to cut out the sounds of wildlife during Zoom calls, Mike, which is my actual favorite part. Um, but the lengths with which Bridgewater can, goes often reminds me, I mean, we're talking about China. Usually you see photos like this and I think, yeah, if they came up with something kind of crazy and paternalistic, it's probably China or it's probably Bridgewater. Yeah, I mean, paternalistic or cultish or right. uh, essentially <laughs> really trying to elevate what the project of the firm is, um, you know, and say that it's so essential we have to essentially create this encampment. Uh, in order for people to pursue this uh, this work, and it's always amazing. I mean, I know it's for not a tremendous number of employees that are that are you know in this mode right now. There's thousands of Bridgewater employees. A lot of people wonder why are there so many thousands of Bridgewater employees because it is you know kind of a relatively small number of products, like macro black box type uh, type strategies. But it is uh, it is sort of fascinating and shows you how much. Uh, kind of money is in the firm, is in the business, yeah. that they can just backstop uh, whatever they, they feel they need to do to, to, you know, to stay And, Mike, involved. let me just get backwards for a second, because I would like your take on this Carvana move today. I mean, it's a monster stock today, but it's had a monster year. So I understand that they're saying, hey, we're big beneficiaries from this surge of sales. But why do you think there's been such an outsized move here? I mean, right place, right time in so many different ways, right, because people – a huge bulge in, in used car buying in general happening. Everybody wants to do it on a remote basis. You don't want to go out and look for them. And they're the, the middleman uh, right in the middle of it. But $40 billion market cap, this is what this company is pushing right now. It's basically eBay's market cap. eBay has a tremendous business of, of selling used cars, you know, acting as the, the, you know, the, uh, the auction site for yeah. them. and has for many years. So it is fascinating how this market wants the pure play only. It doesn't want some other business tucked into a larger one. You know, the other quick thing I want to mention here, John, is that Carvana is a business model that the car dealers don't want to exist, right? It only sells used cars because the dealers have a monopoly on selling new cars. I look at this. I look at GM buying Nikola Ford, and I say maybe GM should just sell its new cars fully online and <laughs> unlock, you know, Carvana-like valuations, and there's the future. Well, Kelly, I don't think that's what this is. I think part of what the issue is is that Carvana's gain is Uber and Lyft's loss. People don't trust ride-hailing during the pandemic. And what Carvana was able to show is that even though the gap between wholesale and retail used, price, used car prices is narrowing, they're still able to do well, which suggests that there's something to the brand, something to the service that's mm -hmm. keeping people happy and willing to pay a little bit more. popping up everywhere these days. Real quickly before we go, if you haven't heard about Stooping, a great article in the Wall Street Journal explains it today. It's when you cruise Instagram for furniture left on the curb, Julia. My personal equivalent, I love, I talk about this all the time, my Facebook buy nothing group. But I, I do see these posts now cropping up all over Instagram. It cracks me up. It's what's old is new again. It's reuse and recycle, Kelly. I mean, we are, we've told so many stories about people living the cities for the suburbs. And this is really seems like a perfect example that people are in a rush to get out of their apartment and, and move out to somewhere where they might have a backyard and some land. And it seems like this is some way to maybe pass along a piece of furniture that they didn't want to take on to this next phase of life um, to their neighbors. But uh, really interesting, especially to see how different social media platforms are trying to tap into interest around yeah. this. Facebook yeah. obviously being the perfect example. Mike, they do have it in the city, too. Yeah. You know, it works in urban areas. I was going to say that, you know, we've done this without the, uh, the app uh, for a long time. <laughs> you just walk the streets and you see things. And here's a fascinating dynamic, which is, 
some old tattered coffee table that somebody else put to the sidewalk somehow is much more attractive than if that same thing was sitting in your yes. home for five years. And so there's a sort of serendipity effect of it that definitely <laughs> the gets next people. billion-dollar idea, Mike, Couchvana. You know, <laughs> oh, used cars yes. to used couches. There you go. Just white glove service deliver that. <laughs> Thank you all today. John Ford, Julia Borston, and Michael Santoli. Coming up, if you want to know what's driving market volatility, look no further than the Fed. That's according to my next guest who joins us with what went wrong and what he'd like to see going forward. Stay here. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets have been in a soft patch lately. In fact, it goes back to the Fed meeting last Wednesday. Since then, we've dropped more than 3%. And my next guest says it's no coincidence. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. And Dave, do you see these comments from Evans today as well? I did. And actually, I'm, I'm pretty surprised at those, Kelly. I mean, Charlie was really one of the original price level targeters, make up for past mistakes, don't let bygones be bygones with inflation targeting. And those were... Uh, those were some fighting words, sort of expecting, you know, he knows the market's expecting more, but he's not really ready to give it. And I, I think, look, Neil Kashkari, to me, really summed it up in his Friday dissent uh, piece, which I think all of your watchers should have a read of. Uh, he said, you know, we're, we're basing our next move up in rates on assessments still. Assessments that inflation will get back to an average of 2%, not that there is a 2% average hit. And that assessment, as well as the assessment on the labor market, have just been kind of bad assessments by the Fed for the last few decades. They're yeah. not that good at their assessments. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm very taken aback by what happened. So let state. me lay this out and, and, and correct me where I'm wrong. What you would like to see is something more like them coming out and saying, you know, we're going to let inflation average 3% for three years and then we would do, we would raise interest rates, for instance, just to give people a kind of a, a framework for what they're dealing with. On the other hand, Evans came out today and said we could start raising rates before we start averaging 2%. Um, which, so, so your point is they're kind of getting the communication. The communication is confusing here if what they're really Super. trying to do is let things run hot, so to speak. Well, you, you, you say that, and we thought that. And, I mean, I, I thought Charlie was on that side. I thought a lot, a lot of these guys were on that side. We knew Rob Kaplan probably wasn't based on his comments. But just the idea that we're, we're not going to some commitment to hit this average inflation target for a time, say three years of average inflation at or at 2% before we move, as opposed to an assessment that we will likely be hitting average inflation of 2% over the next two or three years. Right, because their assessments are difference. so wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going back to kind of uh, almost the Nairu-based world of saying, hey, we think inflation is going to pick up two, three, four quarters down the road, so we're going to tighten early. That's what we thought we got away from. And honestly, Kelly, we didn't get away from it. And I think the market's pretty disappointed in that. And it's so, giving the Fed a lot of leeway, but it's also pulling back where I think a lot of expectations were. hundred percent. So then let's end it here because we will hear from the Fed chair tomorrow. I believe also on Thursday, he's on Capitol Hill. Granted, this is not the kind of environment where he would say the following, but what could he say to tell market participants that the Fed will go in the direction that you're suggesting instead of what you're seeing take place? I think something along the lines, Kelly, of just, hey, this is work in progress. This was a compromise. We're still working on communication. Hmm. We really want this average inflation target regime to, to take hold. And we're looking at you know, just reiterating it and talking about how the communication process is a work in progress. I think the market will accept that. 
and we can go into December and kind of leave the election behind and the politics behind of, of what might be happening behind the scenes and then get to a real average inflation target with a look back with sort of not letting bygones be bygones. Yeah. And I think that's something for next year. And hopefully that happens. And hopefully Neil's on the right path uh, of where we're headed. I think he, he wrote a great piece. So. It's fascinating. And it's it's not, you know, what your take on this was very different, especially at first than, than most others. And I think now they're coming around to that view. Dave, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Bye. Zervos of Jeffries. Still ahead, Apple down more than 10% in the past month, 20% from its highs. And my next guest says the stock could be facing a make or break moment. He tells us why in just a minute. Shares of Apple struggling to stay positive today and are now down more than 20% from its recent high. My next guest says the tech giant may be facing a make-or-break moment as they approach a key technical level. For more, let's bring in Paul Hickey of Bespoke Investment Group. Paul, it's good to see you. What are you watching? Well, so the stock, I mean, it's fallen 20% from its high, which is considered a bear market from a technical perspective. And given that Apple's the bigger than a lot of international benchmark indices at this point, I uh, that kind of uh, measurement should be applied here. The stock did just bounce at its uptrend yesterday. We saw that nice reversal, but it came. the rally came up just short of its 50-day uh, moving average, and it still hasn't gotten above that level now. So I think when you're looking at Apple here, the next few days are going to really tell you the direction of um, you know whether the stock is going to bounce or it's going to see what is a typical bear market for the stock, which would be an additional 18% downside from here. And we're around 110. I don't know if you know off the top of your head where that 50-day is. So the 50-day is just under 111. So um, you know we've been you know we've been above and below that throughout the day. But I mean, when the Nasdaq up as much as it is today, and uh, Apple just hanging in there with a modest gain, it's it, it's not the type of momentum you wanted to see follow through from yesterday's reversal. And there's two resets that could be happening here. The one is the broader uptrend that you talked about. Uh, the other is a valuation one. I mean, Apple's price to earnings multiple has expanded dramatically of late. And you say if it goes back to a market multiple, the share price would be under 84. Yeah, so what's really interesting is for years, we always compared Apple to um, its valuation to the market versus other sectors. And we, we often would say, well, if Apple was like a consumer staple stock, you know, once Buffett got into it, it was very undervalued. You look at the stock now, if it was a consumer staple stock, it would have to trade down about 35% from current levels, but versus the market overall, it would have to trade to the mid-90s. The key takeaway is things have changed for Apple. I mean, it has um, taken on a more of a services approach, and it's really embracing this uh, subscription recurring revenue model but it's not the cheap stock that it was just even a year ago. So even as we watch Apple battling it out here uh, for direction, Paul, are the other tech stocks at a similar junction? Yeah, I think what we saw in July and August is tech just really got ahead of itself, um, not under, you know, with very little in the way of a uh, fundamental driver behind it. And I think we saw what we saw is 11 straight months of growth outperforming value, which is a record. It's never happened before. And now we're seeing some um, give back here, which, you know, up until yesterday, growth was underperforming value by the most in the month since uh, early 2001. So we're seeing, you know, them coming back down to earth here. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's what the growth stocks do is going to be dependent on what the economy does here. And if we see a broadening out of the economy and economic strength, I think the growth stocks and large cap tech will suffer. 
Well, so final question here, because as you've described September, it has been this shift towards the value stocks and some signs, uh, good economic news on the recovery. Now we've got a different set of headlines this week, the uncertainty over COVID, the Supreme Court vacancy, the UK uh, COVID count, you know, it concerns here. Just the past couple of days, the Nasdaq's back to outperforming. So what does that tell you? Yeah, so we started to see that outperformance come again this week, which uh, with the concerns over COVID uh, in the UK headlines that we've seen. I think one of the encouraging aspects is, you know, schools have been back in session for a month now, not fully, but around the country, schools are going back in. And what we've seen is the national case counts of COVID haven't increased. The positivity levels are down of the testing and hospitalizations are down. So, I mean, I'm not saying this is by any means at all clear, but uh, it's it's trending in the right direction here. And uh, that gives us um, encouragement for a broader from a broader economic perspective. And perhaps to give growth investors uh, some some caution to think about. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Paul Hickey of Bespoke, again, watching just around the $111 mark for Apple shares today. They're trading just below that level. That does it for us here on The Exchange, but don't go anywhere. Coming up on Power Lunch, just as COVID case counts surge, the cruise industry has submitted recommendations to the CDC in hopes of setting sail from the U.S. before year end. The CEOs of Royal Caribbean and Norwegian join us to discuss. I'll see you on the other side of this quick break with Tyler Matheson on Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.